Welcome to a brand new week of the Curious Podcast. I'm Grace Chung. And I'm Lina So Ng. Hello, and we uncover the secrets of successful women in tech and science in Asia. Hey Grace, we've had some very interesting guests and today is no exception. Yes, she's been awarded an OBE from Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth and a Dutonship in Malaysia. A Dutonship is considered a knighthood and she received it from the Sultan of Selangor for her groundbreaking work in cancer research, specifically in the area of breast cancer. Professor Datin Paduka, Dr. Teo Su Huang, welcome to the Curious Podcast. You're the head of uh, Cancer Research Malaysia and you've been highly commended for completing the largest genetic and genomic database of Asian breast cancers. But before we get to that, can we find out a bit about you? Yes, you were an ASEAN scholar in Singapore, and then you went on to Cambridge to do your master's and your PhD in biochemistry, and then you went into research. So when did you know that you'll become a research scientist focusing on breast cancer? Well, I never set out to become a scientist. I suppose you could say I'm an accidental scientist. I had a lot of different options in front of me in terms of what I could have been, but I never really thought I would end up being a scientist. Uh, what determined my career was really the scholarship that I obtained from Yayasan Sandavi, and that really changed my life. Because I never thought that I would have the opportunity to go overseas to study and to have an opportunity to go to the top university in the world or one of the top three universities in the world uh, under scholarship from Malaysia. Uh, was was an amazing opportunity and that really changed my life. So doing a science degree in Cambridge, then the rest was the very good training I received in Singapore as an ASEAN scholar. Because one of the benefits of studying in Singapore is become incredibly good at doing exams. And surprisingly, you know, for someone who never was really top bill in Malaysia, I go to Cambridge and I was uh, top in my class from a number of subjects. And I went on to win a Welcome Trust Prize Studentship to do my PhD. And then at that point, I realized that science is really what I am passionate about. I really love the idea that, you're, that you can pursue knowledge and you can stand on the, on the shoulder of giants to pursue that knowledge. And even if you can contribute just one small piece of research in your life, that can somehow contribute to so much better things in technology for a whole generation of people and to solve the world's biggest problems, right? And I could, you know, in a sense, um, yeah, got bitten by the bug and never looked back ever since. I think wow. it's a great blessing for us, especially, you know, women and women who have friends who have breast cancer as well. You worked in research institutions in the UK and you were head of tissue resources at Cancer Research UK. Also awarded various fellowships, Eisenhard, Dorothy Hodgkin. Then you chose to start a non-profit cancer research organization in Malaysia. So what compelled you to do this? Crazy, right? <laughs> the audacity of setting up a non-profit research organization in a Malaysian low and middle income country in an Asian setting. You know, it's madness to try and think back, you know, um, to consider the possibility that we would set up a non-profit organization that would try and do cancer research. So actually, this was never my brainchild. It was never something that I wanted to do or set out to do and set as an ambition. But because I was a Sandabi scholar, I got a phone call one day from then the deputy chairman of Sandabi Berhad, who is uh, Yang, Yang Ahmad Mulia Tunku Ahmad Yahya. 
And Tumpu said to me that he was an alumni of Bristol University, and Bristol University was trying to raise money for oral cancer research because there was a very active group of researchers at the university that was working on uh, why oral cancers occur, what are differences between oral cancers that occur in the West versus in Asia, and what could be done about it. So the idea was that they would try and raise money from Malaysia to support oral cancer research. And Tunku Ahmad was an amazing statesman and an amazing leader. And he thought, why not? You know, Why not support an effort that would do this? But instead of just shipping off the money to the UK, he said, you know, why don't we see whether it's possible to start a research program right here in Malaysia? Because this is a cancer that's more common in our part of the world. So I went with him for many conversations and we were very privileged to meet some incredible individuals, right? From the late Tun Azizan to the late Sansi uh, Lim Botong and so on and so forth. And these individuals really were pretty amazing because they listened to a half an hour pitch from Tunku about why this was important. They looked at a 27-year-old woman, 27-year-old woman from Cambridge and said, yeah, why not? I'll take a bet. So we started with one million ringgit um, for a year, for a flat for the first four years. We started with three million ringgit to buy equipment and to kind of get started with infrastructure. And away we go. Looking back, it's crazy to think that um, that you would try and set something up with so little. You know, if you look at the budgets of what governments put into research institute, it's huge. Why would an organization of six people with so little resources succeed? There are several incredible stories embedded within this, right? I think first and foremost is to have a, a visionary who felt that this is a worthy thought. You know, and that's what Tunku gifted to the world by thinking that you know he could lend his name, lend his context to get something started. Right? And then it was um, young Kuchikurap with nothing to lose, because in a sense I was building my career overseas. You know, I was winning all of these awards, but I always felt that um, research in the hallowed halls of Cambridge was, was fantastic. But if I wasn't there, 50 other people could do that work. But in Malaysia, oh. there's just fewer of us. There's so much fewer of us. And if we actually want to do something significant, we have to move it back here. Mm-hmm. It's no point that we, you know, we always celebrate Malaysians who are succeeding elsewhere. But we don't try and shine a light on what is possible and what is needed in our own country. So what do I have to lose? You know, some dirt on my face if it fails. Um, but the reality is um, not a lot, I think. So it was because of the encouragement from Tumpu, that visionary, um, that, that vision that he set up. And then having Tokwan Dr. Aisha Ong bring her social connections into play to try and really kickstart the, the, the organization. You know, and, and then having along the, the group donors who really kind of, I think, hedge a bet on us. You know, because mm. when you have no track record, it's really a bet. But and you've been going strong for how long now? Well, we started operations. We started a begging in 1997. <laughs> okay? And we opened our lab in January 2001. Okay. And been going strong ever since. So I left for a short while. I went back to the UK uh, when I was pregnant because my husband was there. But we came back as a family in 2006. And I've been with the rejoined the organization in 2006. And I would say 
we've grown tremendously since 2006, you know, really um, starting a different trajectory since that time, right? And really mm. changing focus since that time. Yeah, I suppose um, on a personal level, it's a 15-year anniversary, um, almost to the day, actually. I started 1st of July, 2008. Ah. So oh, yes. uh, almost to the day, it's 15 years. <laughs> so you have done quite a lot of work at Cancer Research Malaysia. And one of the things that you have done was the, to complete the largest database, uh, genetic and genomic database of Asian breast cancers. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Basically, the, the premise is this, right? A lot of the times we think, you know, if you, if you ask people where are the best research institutes in the world, they'll name Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Mayo, everything in the West, right? But if you think about it, you know, research that's done in the West would work on the European populations, right? We'll work on the diseases that are common in the, in the European populations. And for a disease like breast cancer, for example, it is as common in the West as it is in Asia. So Asians have a lower risk, et cetera. But the harsh reality is that um, we now know that treating cancers cannot happen by just treating them all as one disease. There are many different types of sub-diseases. So for example, in breast cancer, there are 10 different types of breast cancer. And our response to treatments is dependent also on our immune system, our immune microenvironment, and that, in turn, is dependent on our diet and on the bugs that live in our guts, on mm. the genes that we inherit from our parents, the environment that we live in, and so on. So why is it that we would assume that the research that's done in the halo halls of Harvard, Cambridge, Mayo, or whatever else, would be relevant to our own population? It may not be. Yeah. So at the time that we started this work, 98% of the detailed analysis of breast cancer at the genomic level was done in the Caucasian population. Only 2% was done in the Asian population. We've now changed that. So by systematically working with doctors to set up a tissue bank, um, we were able to set up a resource where you collected surplus tissue from uh, breast cancer patients, linked it to their clinical data, and then did very fancy genomic studies to try and map out the genomes of these cancers. Right. And then a heck of a lot of data analysis involving thousands and thousands of computer, equivalent computer time, and really mapped out what is different between Asian cancers and Caucasian cancers. And, you know, it, it, it wasn't enough to just create a map. What we really wanted to do was to try and use that map to help us understand, so what's different? And what are the implications of that difference? So we found three key differences between Asian breast cancers and Caucasian. And we used one of the information to start our first clinical trial, where we're testing a treatment that was originally developed for melanoma patients and lung cancer patients. We're now able to pick up a specific group of Asian breast cancer patients that may respond to a treatment, a type of immunotherapy that was originally developed for lung cancer and melanoma. So already, we're already, you know, we've already had some early indication that this group of patients responds to this type of therapy, and this is where the organization wants to go. This is a really walking the talk of why we set this up in the first place, to not just do the basic science and do the building blocks to enable us to understand are diseases different in the Asian population, but to take that information forward in a way that hopefully can help a lot more women can help a lot more men and ultimately help a lot more families in the future to ensure that they can survive this disease. 
So is the impact of this research, is that global? Uh, are scientists and doctors using your database elsewhere? Absolutely, yeah. So in science nowadays, you know, it's um, a lot of it is about big data, right? Mm, so yes. science is all about big data. Yeah, so no, for no. example, you know, another study that I co-led was, was the largest global study to try and understand why is it that some individuals have a 65% chance of developing breast cancer in their lifetime, whereas other individuals only have a 2% chance of developing breast cancer? Uh -huh. We have a method that enables women to know what their actual individual risk of developing cancer is. Uh -huh. So we've this global study that involved 130,000 women uh -huh. from all over the world. Uh -huh. And this book was recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And if it wasn't for the, our contribution from Malaysia and Singapore, um, it would have gone back to less than 1% of that research would have involved Asians. But because of our contribution, 15% of that global work was from Malaysia and Singapore alone. It was a very sizable part of the Asian contribution. Right? So it's about putting Asians on that map and making sure that the data sets that we have are not just used for, to benefit us, but that we can look at it from a population-wide level. So the work that we're doing in terms of pushing the frontiers of understanding how advanced methods can help us understand diseases here is being translated into how can we screen better? How can we diagnose better? How can we treat better in our own population? And how can the information be useful for the Asians that are living elsewhere? So the research that we're doing is actually informing on what to do with Asians living in Asia as well as what to do with Asians living in Caucasian countries, right? And, and now have a lot of collaborators in those Caucasian countries because they're looking at implementation and how to remove some of the ethnic and, um, and exclusion criteria and how to be more inclusive in health delivery, um, no matter where you are in this world. So all of this is leading to precision medicine, personalized medicine. Is that what your ultimate goal? I, you know, I wish we didn't have to do precision medicine because the reality is that precision medicine is expensive. Yeah. Hard to run up, right? Because we need technology to understand more about each individual. We need to deliver solutions for N equals to one. That means one person at a time. And invariably, when you try and do that, it's a lot more expensive. I wish that we didn't have to do precision medicine. But the reality is that for diseases like cancer, it's a heterogeneous disease. Um, that means even when we call, we call cancer breast cancer, it's not one disease, it's 10 different diseases. So if we try and get at breast cancer and try and cure cancer with one tool, we ain't going to work. We need to be able to develop different tools because the reality is that's how the disease is. So the harsh reality is if we're actually going to be able to improve survival for cancer, we need to be able to understand which tool do we need for each individual. Which screening do we need for each individual? Which prevention do we need for each individual? And hopefully, you know, the knowledge that we have, the development of these innovations will lead to a better outcome for our children's generation, our grandchildren's generation. And, you know, and hopefully this disparity that exists between the Caucasian population and the Asian population will start to narrow so that we start to represent Asians more in, in the world of cancer research. And that's exactly what Cancer Research Malaysia is trying to do. So, so can I ask that besides breast cancer, are there other cancers that you're studying at Cancer Research Malaysia? Yeah, absolutely. 
We have research programs in ovarian cancer and uh, small programs in prostate cancer. But one of our largest programs is in uh, head and neck cancers, in oral oh. cancer and pharyngeal cancer in particular. So remember, we rewind back, that was the cancer that we started with, right? Oral cancer. So oral cancer, you know, is very rare in the Caucasian population. It doesn't exist. Nasal pharyngeal cancer, which um, Dato Li Chong Wei contracted, unfortunately, it's also very rare, you know, Asian people have 40 times higher risk than a white, you know, white Oh, gosh. Oh. It's a lot more common in our part of the world. So mm -hmm. reality is that if it's common in our part of the world, doctors know about it here. We can recruit patients here. This is where the research studies need to be done, similarly for oral cancer. So led by Professor Chong Sok Ching. So she led the work, um, you know, when I first started, my first job, was to hold a canister, not, not very different from my water bottle, right? A metal canister that looks a little bit bigger than this. And I would be standing outside the OT, uh, operating theater, waiting for the doctors to cut out a jaw or a gum or a cheek. Oh, and I would wow. be collecting a small tissue sample about the size of the tip of my pinky, right? And that tissue sample would go into this canister filled with liquid nitrogen so as to preserve its characteristics. And then now we've set up, you know, cell lines, cancer cell lines, essentially cancers growing on a plastic dish that enables us to study those cancers rather than poking patients all the time. This initial work we started 20 years ago, we now have one of the largest resource of Asian, breast can uh, Asian oral cancer lines. We've used this uh, CRISPR gene editing technology to figure out what are the genes that drive this cancer. And we've just recently completed a drug screen to help us figure out, so if they have deficiencies in these cancers, what drugs can now be used to be able to kill these cancers more effectively. But Sokcheng went beyond that. She went on to develop a cancer vaccine, something that we can inject into a patient that trains the patient's immune system to hone in on the oral cancers to be able to make sure that the patient's own immune system can fight cancers themselves. And fingers crossed, if everything goes well, we'll be in phase one clinical trials early next year. Yeah. You know, Grace, what makes this session very meaningful is not just the innovation that Sue is doing and Cancer Research Malaysia is doing, but also what Dr. Teo stands for. She has said that scientists don't just do science, they also create an impact. And she raised funds to establish Malaysia's first patient navigation program to help poor women improve their access to life-saving uh, life cancer treatments. So how did this start? I was, um, I was nominated as an Eisenhower Fellow. And, and Eisenhower, um, President Eisenhower, of course, was, you know, during the war, et cetera, very critical in America's um, uh, fight in, in, in the war. But after he came up from that war and became president, when he retired as president, he decided that instead of setting up a library or a school or something, he wanted a fellowship to be named after him. And we wanted to build relationships between America and the rest of the world. So every year, they would try and get um, one fellow in a selected number of countries to win uh, an Eisenhower fellow and spend seven weeks in the U.S. So in my seven weeks there, I went to 68 meetings in 14, 14 cities yeah. in seven weeks. <laughs> I also gave a speech um, that was attended by uh, Colin Powell and James Barker, so two secretaries of state. Um, yeah, someone told me Colin Powell reached for his tissue when I spoke. 
um, because I spoke about cancer and of course he is a cancer survivor himself. And therefore, this was very, very close to his heart. But the long story, the, I know the short story for that is I went there to find out these things, right? I wanted to know how can we deliver uh, cancer control if you don't have enough money? And I wanted to talk to the directors in the top cancer institutes to learn how. Number two is I wanted to learn why is it advocacy works in the US, but doesn't work terribly well anywhere else, especially in Asia. Why is advocacy such a dirty word in Asia, but the possibility is such an empowerment in the US. Mm. The third thing I wanted to do is I wanted to learn more about why is it that the disadvantaged populations have a worse outcome for cancer in the US and what was being done to be able to address it. Mm. And so I went round, you know, I have a typical Malaysian ask all the questions, say, how do you do, how do, you do that? How, how, how can you help me do this, do that, etc. And everyone turned around and said to me, so the solution is to stay. The whole point is you are articulating this. The, the, if you can articulate the solution, my only question to you is why are you not doing it? Why are you not making the solution a reality? Mm. I learned a lot from that session and coming back, I then had the opportunity to work with Tunku and many others to raise money through a golf tournament to set up the patient navigation program. And our premise was, was a very simple one. That survival, five-year survival for breast cancer in South Korea is 91%, 87% in Singapore, and 49% in some hospitals in Malaysia. 49% compared to 91%. Mm -hmm. So all the answers that I was doing for precision medicine is not actually going to save lives until I can bridge that disparity. Right? Mm -hmm. That's about establishing a different team. A team that would not be making discoveries in the lab, but would be making discoveries in the healthcare system, in the support networks, in the beliefs that women have, in the barriers that women face in order to be able to access treatment. Today, not because of me, I'm just a puppet head that gets to talk about it, but because of an amazing team led by Mahes and many others, we've now been able to set up a center where uh, timeliness of diagnosis has gone up from 70% to 95%. Adherence to treatment has gone from 85% to 98%. And we're improving survival for low-income women. So in a way that now one center has become four centers, I think scientists have an important role to play in society, not just in the laboratories, by applying what we know, what we see, and the methods that we apply to solve world's problems. And I think more than ever, um, we need more scientists. We mm -hmm. absolutely need more scientists to, to take on this challenge and to go along this route. It's, you are far from being a puppet, Dr. Chiu, an awe-inspiring you know, uh, tale, uh, but, what you have done for cancer research Malaysia, for cancer research globally. Mm -hmm. you know, so we want to thank you for your time. Uh, we know that, that you're a busy lady. Um, and uh, do check out the website, um, cancerresearch.my, uh, for ways to donate to your institute. Yeah, there's a non-profit, so they're making a big difference in the global fight against cancer. So please, uh, especially among us, the Asian populations. So this is a cause worth supporting and a career worth embarking on. Yes, uh, absolutely. Be a scientist.
So thank you, uh, Dr. Teo. Uh, it has been a privilege and honor to have you with us today. Uh, and we hope that you will go on to do many, many wonderful things. I would like to thank you for joining us today. Uh, this is Lena So, um, signing up from the Curious Podcast, tracking the footsteps of successful women in tech and science in Asia. Do join us again next week. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.